This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I uh, I got to say, I'm very, very, very excited about this podcast. In part because I get to exact some revenge on the part of various friends of mine. I have heard from maybe a half dozen friends who say, uh, have said two words to the effect of, damn you, Goldberg. Um, I started listening to that Revolutions podcast, and I'm now like 35 episodes into the French Revolution, and I can't <laughs> get out. <laughs> um, and, uh, and which brings me to my guest today, Mike Duncan. He's the host of the Revolutions podcast. Before that, he did his very famous Roman history podcast. He's got a new book out called... Uh, Hero, uh, uh, hero of two worlds, uh, the Marquis de Lafayette in the age of revolution. Uh, Mike Duncan, welcome to the remnant. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, so one of my cardinal rules, cause I've written books. I've had a lot of book authors on here. One of my first rules because book tours suck is I always ask the easiest, the best question that every author wants to hear, which is what's your book about? Mm -hmm. But you kind of gave up the goods in the title it's right so there in the subtitle yeah yeah so how about why did you write this book why lafayette why does lafayette matter um lafayette matters to me uh i mean it grows organically out of the show um you know i just said you you're encouraging people to listen to the show and so there's uh you know it's a multi it's a multi-season thing where i'm i'm sort of moving chronologically through great political revolutions in history and the second series of it was the american revolution and I knew that the third season was going to be about the French Revolution. And so as I was writing about the American Revolution, I uh, sort of was paying closer attention to people who I knew were going to show up in the French Revolution among like Tom Paine is somebody who I was paying a, a lot of attention to because I know that he's going to show up in the French Revolution. And then, of course, the Marquis de Lafayette is the most famous of these individuals who plays a role in the American Revolution and then goes on to play a role in the French Revolution. And so I'm paying attention to him, and I, I think he's a really interesting guy. And when you're reading about him in the American context, it's very much like, oh, we love him. He's George Washington's surrogate son. Yeah, he sacrificed his, his life, and, or he didn't sacrifice his life, but he put his life on the line for the American cause. Um, so it's a, it's a very rosy picture of Lafayette in American history and American historiography. And then I moved over to the French Revolution and started writing about him. 
And I find in the books that I'm reading, not just French historians, but also, you know, English historians and American historians who are writing about the French Revolution, have a very different portrayal of this guy Lafayette. He now becomes, oh, that bumbler Lafayette. And oh, um, you know, he blew this and Lafayette, who was asleep at the switch again, you know, like these kinds of like little digs would come into it. Um, and so this then became very, very interesting to me as just uh, nothing changed about him. He was the same person between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, but there's something that happened here uh, where one group portrays him one way and one group portrays him another way. So now I'm now I'm very interested in him. Now I'm really paying attention. And I find out that he played a much greater role in the French Revolution than I think ever, anybody gives him credit for in terms of just like the popular imagination. And then I can, okay, so then he gets ejected from the French Revolution. I'm moving on to like, I'm doing a series on South American independence and I'm reading biographies of Simone Bolivar. And suddenly I find Simone Bolivar is in like regular correspondence with Lafayette <laughs> later in his life because he really looked up to him as somebody who had done what Bolivar was trying to accomplish like in Venezuela. And then I get on to the revolution of 1830. I'm now in the sixth series and Lafayette shows up again to play a major role in the French Revolution of 1830. And then I'm looking back at all of the work that I've done in the Revolutions podcast so far, and I find out that Lafayette has shown up in more episodes and in more series than any other uh, historical figure that I'd been talking about. And this remains true, you know, like I've moved on, like, you know, I, I did 1848 and I've, you know, I'm in the Russian Revolution. Obviously, Lafayette doesn't show up in the Russian Revolution, no matter how much I look for him. Although, uh, you know, <laughs> Kerensky is basically the Lafayette of the Russian Revolution. Um, so that's what it is. He just, he showed up all the time and there are different portrayals of him. And so when I then, when it came time to like pitch a book and what do you want to write about? I was like, I really want to go back to the beginning of this guy's life he lived through this incredibly tumultuous and incredibly important period in European history, Atlantic history, global history. And I just want to tell one continuous narrative and, and see all of this through his eyes and try to create like a unified theory of Lafayette as opposed to just either he was super great and everybody loves him or he was a complete bumbling fool and he just he was a complete failure, neither of which is, is true. He was a, a real human being who did things right and did things wrong, all of which is fascinating to me. Yeah, so I, I full disclosure, um, I always try to be honest with listeners about this stuff. I'm only into chapter three, Lafayette's just getting to America um, in the book. Um, uh, these are for, well, for there. There is lots more to come. No, I know there is. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Um, and uh, uh, and I will admit also, I've been listening to it on audio, which is really kind of funny because I'm used to your voice from the Revolutions podcast. Mm -hmm. And you sound a little fancier. <laughs> in the book well, it's a, it's a book, man. You know, you gotta, you gotta class it up a little bit. Did you have a, did you have a coach kind of person come in to help you with it or did you just record it yourself? No, I just recorded it myself. I had a, I had a producer in my ear when I recorded for, um, the storm before the storm book. And I actually felt uh, a, a bit more inhibited trying to do that. And so when we came around to do this one, they said, well, we can give you a producer or, you know, you can just submit audio files to us and we'll see how it goes. And I just started submitting audio files and they were like, oh, this is great. You're fine. And I got to say, it's because like, I, I want to get to your historiography and all, sort, and all sorts of other things, but the only, I shouldn't say the only substantive critic criticism, the only enduring criticism I have, which is one that you acknowledge almost in every episode is sometimes your pronunciations of things is it's a cat in a blender for me. <laughs> sure. I, of course. And I can't, I mean, I, I don't pretend to be able to pronounce a lot of French and the nice thing about German stuff is you just pronounce it as ugly as you can. <laughs> and that tends to be about right. Yeah. But like some of the French stuff, I had to go look up whether Parlement 
yep. was a different thing than parliament. Um, because it is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a different word and a different institution. One is the Parlement and one is Parliament. Um, and uh, you know, I, I did, uh, to write this book, I did ultimately learn French, you know, and I, I moved to Paris for three years. So, um, so I did live in France for, uh, for a number of years. And so my French pronunciation has gone from atrocious to, uh, I would say sub mediocre or at least passable. Um, but you are right. As you go through revolutions, I'm trying to pronounce uh, French and German. Uh, Hungarian comes into it. Russian obviously comes into it. And I have um, very uneven instincts about pronunciation. And it is a constant foible. And I just simply have to maintain a sense of humor about it. Otherwise, I'll kill myself. Yeah, look, you, you acknowledge it. It's just yep. fine. You know, yep. and, but uh, um, all right. So let's let's let's. Back into this a little bit. Um, in the first chapter of, of the Lafayette book, um, uh, which I, I will tell you, I, I am truly legitimately enjoying. Um, uh, and it's kind of fun to see what were illusions or very truncated things from the Revolutions podcast get a little more air in it. Um, but, and so you have this, this throwaway observation. I don't say it's throwaway because it's important, but about how the the French high nobles, the, the old rich, you know, that very small group of uh, nobles of the sword who were also still super rich, mm-hmm. they had all been sort of brought into to live around Versailles. And I just have a question about this in that, um, first of all, can you explain why that happened? But second of all, um, could that in part explain why France was more prone to absolutism? than the UK, than England was, because England kept its nobles as different centers of power in ways that kind of prevented the king from having a centralized power, also prevented standing armies, which is another problem for, for uh, absolutism. You know what I'm saying? It feels like that's, it's a sub-theme in there, or it's an idea in there that you didn't flesh out, but I just thought it was sort of interesting the way you sort of put it in there. Yeah, and the thing to understand about the French Revolution and what that was in opposition to is, you know, the, the word that is used is ancien regime, right? Which is the word ancient. And you basically look at it as the ancient regime, like from an American eye or from an English eye. But really ancien just means like the former regime or the old regime. That's how it's like more properly um, uh, translated uh, from French to English. And so the absolutism of the French monarchy is a very recent development in terms of uh, uh, how far back in history it goes. This this doesn't really get going until Louis XIV, right? Which is like the the late 1600s and early 1700s is when absolutism as a theory and as a a political system really gets going. It's not like uh, back in the 1200s or the 1100s, the French monarchs were able to claim anything resembling absolute power. Nobody was able to claim absolute power. Feudalism was, uh, were contractual uh, relationships between kings and barons, barons and dukes, dukes and, and vicomps, and all the way down to knights. It was They were reciprocal relations where nobody was really able to just wield absolute power. And a lot of the English Revolution, for example, was about Charles I attempting to uh, impose something like a modern centralized state reach 
over the entirety of his kingdom, which uh, involved a lot of pushback from the gentry and from the other landed nobility who were like, no, like we don't, uh, that's not how this game is played. We don't, we're not just going to let you have all power. So Charles I failed in his attempt to what I, to create what I would think would be a centralized absolutist entity in Britain. Louis XIV succeeded. Um, and the reason why he creates Versailles and the reason why he starts taming the um, the nobility of France by forcing them to come live with him at Versailles and forcing them to to go through all of these motions to uh, uh, if they want to have any kind of power or influence is because the French nobility was incredibly rebellious for many many centuries against the the quote unquote central monarch and so so Louis the Fourteenth grew up in an environment where. Uh, the provincial nobles were constantly rising up and trying to either overthrow the king or replace the king or uh, have more power relative to the king than Louis XIV wanted. And so his ability to uh, to uh, tamp all that down, force all of those people to come build expensive homes in Versailles meant that they couldn't fund their own armies anymore. If you weren't with him at breakfast, that means that you were on the outs and probably you were not going to have any influence anymore. And, and he deftly maneuvered his way through this uh, in a way that Charles I simply did not. And so by the time that you get to, you know, the French Revolution, which is 1789, right, it, that absolutist system was like less than 100 years old in terms of uh, it, it, what it was able to impose on the country. And so they were overthrowing something that was quite recent. And, and I think it just really goes back to Louis XIV being pretty good at it. Um, and Charles I being pretty bad at it, which is why you get, um, you know, parliamentary constitutional government in Britain in a way that you don't get it in France. Um, I, I promise we will get back to Lafayette, but this just is a good segue. Um, you say at the beginning, which I'm also about six or seven episodes in, I guess, of the Russian uh, adventure, that you're also really interested in historiography. And so, but you're also kind of a non professional academic historian you're like an autodidact um uh so first can you just sort of explain to listeners how you got into this stuff and how you became a you know a a sort of a, a rogue historian as yeah well? am i am i a historian or am i not a historian it's uh it's always an open question uh, i have strong on. views on this but uh what do, but, what do you think am i a historian what do you think yeah I, okay. i'm against guilds and okay. and the thing is look i mean as you were talking about with Karl marx shipping off his uh phd thesis to a more liberal university in the early 20th century a lot of my heroes who are public intellectuals they didn't get PhDs by doing a lot of coursework. They wrote a book. They submitted it for review. It became a PhD. Bada bing, they're a PhD historian, but it doesn't mean they weren't historians. So I, I, I don't like the guild stuff a lot. I mean, there's a place for universities and academics and all that kind of stuff, but I have a lot of contempt for the way academic philosophy shuns clear writing and popular topics yeah um we can talk about that if you want but like so well, how did you I, get I, into this and yeah like, and i i mean my relationship with them is i feel like i'm playing a very like my passion is clearly like disseminating knowledge and spreading information and, and being a sort of public educator is what i want to do because i think that all that all that work and all that knowledge that is being produced by the academy does have a hard time sometimes uh, escaping the gravity well of that same academy where it just like a lot of this stuff just collapses back into the universities um, in their own symposiums. And I want it to escape out into the wider world. And so that's, that's just kind of the role that I feel like I'm playing. Um, but I got, I get into this. I, when I was in uh, college, 
I studied political science uh, and minored in philosophy, and my concentration in political science was political theory. So this is that's what I was studying at school, mostly. Poli- you know, I was studying Hume, and I was studying like the utilitarians, and I was studying John Stuart Mill. It was a lot of, as I look back on it, it was a lot of just like classical liberal constitutionalism, um, and uh, you know, Scottish enlightenment. The, the Scottish Enlightenment uh, is what I spent a lot of time with. When it comes to enlightenment, if it's not Scottish, it's crap. But yeah. That's, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you know, human Adam Smith, they, you know, the theory of moral sentiments is a real good book that everybody ought to read. Uh, in addition to, uh, the couple of chapters that people often cut and paste out of wealth of nations. Um, but, uh, what was I saying? Oh, so, so in studying all of that, so I'm studying like political theory. I, if you want to learn Machiavelli, you have to also learn the history of Italy and what was happening in those Italian city states at the time, because all of these people have to be read in the context of their time. If you want to read Hobbes and understand what Hobbes is talking about, you do have to learn about the English civil wars because that's the environment. Like this guy is suddenly producing this theory where you need a, a strong central state to maintain order in an otherwise utterly chaotic universe. Yeah, man, Hobbes is writing in the middle of a 25 year long civil war. Of course, he's going to say things like this. If you want to understand Aristotle and Plato, you have to understand what's going on in the Greek city-state. So uh, I was doing a lot of history reading around what I was studying. And then when I got out of college, mostly what I wanted to keep studying was all of that history. I sort of left the theory behind and just stuck with the historical context. And I fell really hard into reading Livy, and Polybius, and Plutarch, and all of the ancient historians. And the, I mean, this is this is just basically how I roll from out of university a, a couple of years where I was adrift, uh, as 20-somethings can be from time to time. You were a fishmonger at one point. Right? <laughs> I was a fishmonger for like pipes? five... Uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I don't hang out with those prima donnas. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was a real fishmonger, man. I wasn't doing it just for, just for show. Um, they, they use, they use a uh, show fish, you know, for the, yeah, for yeah, the tossing yeah, yeah. right. You don't actually throw around salmon, you know, you got a high, a high end, <laughs> you know, fresh salmon, you don't chuck it across the room. Um, uh, but uh, so I was, so I'm reading all of these things and, uh, decided, you know, so much of like Roman history is confined to a couple of very narrow anecdotes and a couple of and a very narrow prism that we have for our popular understanding of Roman history, which is like Caesar, Cicero, you know, you move into the Julio-Claudians and you get some stuff about Caligula and Nero. But the Roman Empire went on for like a thousand years and most people only know a very small snippet of what was actually going on. So this moves me from... Uh, out of reading all of this stuff and then deciding like, my God, I, I wish that there was a way that I could get these stories out there. And that's how I rolled into podcasting. And this is back in like 2007. Um, was a pretty, it, that's sort of the move from one to the other. So, um, which leads me to this question. So you, you say in that Marxist, uh, the communist, uh, the Bolshevik revolution one, when you're dealing with uh, uh, historical materialism, that you're also interested in historiography and and all that kind of stuff. I have been trying pretty hard to figure out what camp to put you in since I started listening to this, and um, and I, I don't mean just sort of camp of his, his, his historiography, but also sort of ideological camp. And you know, every now and then you tip your hat a little bit one way or the other, but for the most part, I think you're just consummately fair. Um, and even when I have a disagreement with you, it's a totally good faith, you know, kind of thing. Um, but for the life of me, I can't figure out how you would describe yourself. You're not a Whig, 
historian. No. You're not a materialist, although you you're interested in the materialism stuff. I can tell. Yeah, and I mean, and I'm I'm not a Marxist. I don't. Um, you know, historical materialism is something worth uh, studying. But I I think that you know Marx was very very good when he's talking about the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Uh, and then the further you get away from what he was really good at, which is writing about a, a 18th and 19th century European history, um, you know, like when he makes comments about Roman history, like, for example, that's not a Rome that I recognize from the years and years and years that I spent studying Roman history, because I just think that he was re- he was really, really good at at the transition into industrial capitalism in Europe in the 19th century. And that's uh, that's the best place to study him. And he marks has a lot of very good, interesting, impression things to say. Um, in terms of sort of like what I do when I put together like a bibliography for a show is I try to read as many different versions of the event as I can possibly get at. And so when I say I'm interested in historiography, part of this is if I'm studying the English Revolution, I do want to read like S.R. Gardner, who is a monumental figure in uh, in the studying of the event. And then also he is a Whig historian. Like he believed that, uh, that, uh, history was moving towards the liberation of the individual, right? This is the story that he's telling. Um, but I also want to read Christopher Hill, who is, uh, you know, uh, an inner circle British Marxist historian of the 20th century, who was telling a story about a bourgeois revolution, uh, in favor of, uh, an advancing capitalist gentry against a feudal aristocracy. Though both of those stories sort of the frame that you put on them. I want to read all of those so that number one, I can figure out, okay, what are the things that everybody agrees with uh, is true? And then I can extract that and feel very comfortable talking about uh, the things that every sort of all political sides believe is true. Um, And then I also don't feel like, I do feel like my worldview is then expanded to the point where I don't feel like there's just one version of of this story, because I mean, there's one thing we know about history is that number one, we, every generation sort of reinvents its stories about the past. And that's, this has been going on forever. Um, but then, uh, uh, I don't want to get locked into just one of those. And as you say, what, what does it come down to, uh, in terms of fairness, right? How do you treat people fairly in history when you do have like an opinion? And I do, you know, I'm like, I'm clearly like a left-leaning liberal in most of like, in terms of my, uh, encounters with current events in my, uh, you know, uh, modern politics in terms of like, who are the subtle good guys and bad guys out there? Cause yeah, you do as, as a historian, you don't want to fall into, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Um, but you know, I wrote a book about Lafayette and not Metternich, for example, <laughs> right? Like Metternich's not my hero, right? I'm not going to write a book called Metternich, the hero. I'm going to write it, but I am writing a book where I, I slap hero on the title next to a picture of the Marquis de Lafayette. So clearly I have some, uh, some, some biases in here, but it comes down to trying to establish what people's motivations were. And why were they trying to do the things that they were trying to do? And I think that as long as I'm trying to understand, say, you know, what, like I'm talking about Russia, let's say Nicholas and Alexandra are Nicholas and Alexandra, uh, a, a couple who are ruling Russia, who are sitting around talking amongst themselves and being like, gosh, we sure hate all these poor people. Let's just kill them all and destroy them. And, uh, you know, oh, you know, people want reform, but reform is evil because we're evil people and we're going to do evil things. Nobody, nobody, no human being works like that. They had their own worldview, their own uh, idea of what they were up to, their own idea of what they were trying to accomplish. 
And if you can get into their heads a little bit and try to figure out what everybody is trying to do, then you can tell the story in that way. These people are trying to do this and these people are trying to do this and these people are trying to do this and they're running into each other. And maybe I can step back and say, ultimately, Nicholas and Alexandra made a bunch of mistakes and what they were doing was ultimately crippling the Russian empire and led directly to their own overthrow. I don't think they needed to be overthrown. I think that they just needed to be better rulers. Um, but you can do all of that while still being fair to what they thought they were trying to do and what they believe they were trying to do, which is, you know, uh, carry forth this God given inheritance. Uh, they were worried about their hemophiliac son more than anything else. You know, that, that was the thing that was actually driving them on a daily basis. So the, so from a fairness standpoint, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to understand people's motivations. So, um, a lot of this is going to be very triggering for a handful of my Straussian political philosopher friends, but we don't need to get it because it, there's a there's a whiff of, of of historicism to it, which I don't mind. Like you know, there's this what the Germans call it Einfühlung, which we get the word empathy from, uh, which doesn't enter the English language until like 1908, which I think is amazing, and it just means feeling into the context of things. And I the idea that historians shouldn't do any of that is crazy. I understand why philosophers think there are these timeless conversations outside of you know the context here on Earth that we can have over time, and that Hobbes was saying one thing to the masses and Nothing to other people, but the reality is people live in a context. That said, um, so do you have a, I mean, uh, let me put it this way. Do you believe in, and particularly put it in the context of Lafayette, so much of the, rev the stories that you tell boil down to some idiot somewhere making a terrible mistake and then events go the other way, right? And I think you can do too much of that. I'm not saying you, I'm just saying that can be overdone in theory, you know, that some things sort of like the invention of the light bulb was coming, even if, you know, the person that we credit with inventing it doesn't deserve all the credit where it was coming down the pike kind of thing. Um, but there's a lot of contingency, a lot of accidents, mm -hmm. a lot of fate, a lot of bad weather. Yeah, there's a lot of bad weather. So do you believe in the, do you think that that it's all just one damn thing happening after another? Or do you think that there's some version of the great man theory of history where individuals make a difference? Or is it both and? I mean, there's clearly not teleology in what you're doing. There's not. No, like no. Yeah, and that's and I have I have no I have no truck with with the teleological explanations for things, even if, you know, you as Americans in the 20th and 21st century, we can sort of fall into this notion that like, oh, progress is a thing that happens. Right. Like because we were all steeped in that we're steeped in the in the ideological uh belief in in progress capital p progress as a thing that is driving human events um but no i have said previously that the history of the world is the story of uh some apes wandering through the tall grass at night some of them quite drunk um <laughs> and that's really when i look back on, and when you look back because you if you imagine this like there's tall grass and there's this group of apes who are wandering through it you can look back on it and you see a very clear path that they took right and then you can describe how and why that path was taken but there was nothing about the path itself uh the choices that were made in the time that say like you have to go this way or you have to go that way you go left you go right you go straight you go back uh whatever you stop and camp for a little bit that's what I feel like is going on more than anything else. Um, there are like we you can't just do 
whatever you want. I don't, I, I do think that the, the, you know, the weight of history does weigh on all of our minds and on all of our shoulders as we go forward. We, you can't just do a snap complete change in what we're doing. And if you look at the, for example, at the French revolution, like one of the, one of the best things that you can do in, in terms of understanding it is read the people who believe that yes, this was an apocalyptic break with the past and created a whole new thing out of a, a, an old thing that has now been discarded. But then you absolutely have to go read Alexei de Tocqueville and he will lay out the case that much of what we consider to be the new things that emerged from the French revolution had their roots far, uh, far uh, behind the French revolution. And that it, it is a story of continuity as much as it is a story of breaking with the past. So those two things are simultaneously true. I do believe that individual agency matters. Uh, I do believe in sort of the opposite of the great man theory of history, which is that uh, uh, great people doing positive things, not in the sense of like good or bad, but in the sense of like taking action and accomplishing things as opposed to negative, which is like preventing things from being happen, uh, preventing things from happen. Uh, it, I tend to lean more towards the uh, great blunderer theory of history where people are making mistakes. And I do. And some of this just comes from the fact that when I was a, when I was a teenager, I read March of Folly. You know, I was probably like 16 or 17 years old when I read March of Folly by Barbara Tuckman. And I do think that that really, uh, when you're a, when you're an adolescent and you're a teenager, some of those things that happen to you in that period, just stamp you like your musical tastes, uh, your taste in movies, like whatever you were into when you were 15, like in kind of informs your taste for the rest of your life. And so I think that reading March of Folly when I was like 16 or 17 and having that really stamp on me, like I always see the, that events being driven, you know, the, the British lost the American colonies as much as the Americans won it away from them. Like there's, there's great ways to look at the entire American revolution from the perspective of the British. And you just see a, a, a cabinet full of mediocrities completely blowing an easily solvable situation, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, these, these great dynamic American leaders who, who broke away from, uh, from this very powerful empire uh, well, that powerful empire was for about ten or fifteen years being run by some 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 dolts, you know, to put it to put it mildly. Yeah, although I mean, the nice thing about providential history, which I'm not subscribing to, is that God can f explain all of it, right? God put the dolts there. You know? <laughs> yeah, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, but, yeah. God, um, God, God bless the idiots uh, who <laughs> let us. But sometimes, man, having idiots in charge is not the greatest thing in the world. Um. I agree with that. <laughs> if, that's a, if that's a bold statement that I could be making, it's like, what's your political philosophy, Mike? It's like, well, maybe idiots shouldn't be in charge of things. That'd be a great one. One last thing on, well, I don't know if it's the last thing, but uh, one more thing on the, so I learned a lot from your various podcasts. First of all, I learned that people cared way too much about the Presbyterian Book of Prayer during the English Civil War. <laughs> um, I mean, it just like, of all the things to kill people over, it just felt a little overdone. And, th and this is, this again, this is Charles, man. Like, why are you trying to impose this on these people? Like, what is the point? What are you getting out of this? Like nothing except you're losing Scotland. Um, and, but so like, I, so it, a, a different facet of my egghead life. I'm obsessed. My, my colleague, you all live in at the American enterprise Institute. One of his big arguments, which I've done a lot of work on myself is that one of the problems we have in our society is that we used to under the, the traditional understanding of an institution is that it molds character. You surrender parts of yourself to it. You know, you go in a hippie, you come out a Marine. 
Um, you, you go into a university, you come out a scholar, you know, that kind of thing where you give up, go into the Boy Scouts, you, you institution is supposed to mold character. And one of the problems that we have today is that we now use institutions as platforms to perform upon and we exploit the institutions rather than give ourselves over to them. And I think it explains a lot of our cultural problems today. And it leads me to one of these points that I've been making for a while now is I, I, I love Brian Lamb, the founder of C-SPAN. I consider him a kind of a friend. He's a good guy. I think C-SPAN was a real bad thing to happen to American politics because you put cameras on politicians and you change their behavior in bad ways. And this is all leading up to the thing about you have a couple throwaway, and again, I don't mean in a pejorative sense, but you just don't, you don't develop it. Really interesting observations about um, the lead up to the French Revolution and how one of the dis- and it's something I had, I've read a lot about the French Revolution, read a lot about the American Revolution. I, you know, my friend Yuval has got a PhD from Chicago on English history. And, and I asked him about this. He hadn't heard it either. You make this point a couple different times about how one of the reasons why the French Revolution seemed to snowball badly was that a lot of the, me- too many of the meetings were in public. Yeah. And had audiences. And so you had people playing to the audience rather than trying to persuade the person on the other side of the conversation or whatever. They were sort of, it was more theatrical than it was conversational or transactional. And I haven't seen that anywhere else. And I keep asking people, has anybody written an essay on this point? Because it's a really great point. And it, you just kind of glide past it. And I was just wondering, where did you get it? Or well, was gosh, it your maybe, maybe I should Maybe I should write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's a whole book. Now that you mentioned it, maybe I should write about this. Um, I don't, you know, looking back on it, uh, I don't remember exactly where I got that point. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure I read it somewhere. Or you, you maybe know, just I, noticed it a bunch of times. Yeah, no, and, well, know, yeah, and you know. it, like, I, like, I, I think it's both because I was coming into the French Revolution having immediately done the English Revolution, quote unquote, or like the, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, and then the American Revolution, and then you move directly into the French Revolution. And it, there is a very different feel to how those, uh, basically, uh, legislative assemblies are occurring, like the second continental Congress versus the national assembly in terms of the, the feel of the room, how it actually operated in principle. And the, the second continental Congress is like, I don't know how many people were in it, like 30, 50, you know, yeah, there, there were not that many and they were all in one room and they were kind of operating in committees. And then you move to the national assembly. The other big one is you move from having like 50 delegates to having literally 1000 delegates, which creates just its own level of chaos. And then, yeah, there are now risers and bleachers and people are showing up to watch the show. This does change how uh, politics is done, how oratory is done, what you're actually trying to accomplish when you go into the National Assembly. Are you at the National Assembly to write a constitution and pass laws? Or are you at the National Assembly to uh, performatively uh, play to the crowd. Now, the problem here is that there is another side of this. We all know that you know the smoke-filled room is not necessarily a great thing for politics either, right? If you just have a bunch of elites going away and hiding out and having zero transparency, and then they just emerge and say like, well, this is what we did, um, that is also not a great way to be running a democratic society. Though we did get a good constitution out of it. We did get a good constitution <laughs> out of it. I think so. Um, although there were some things about, uh, you know, the constitution yeah, that I true. think we can all at this point take a great deal of exception to. But I mean, th- th- there's this really weird, yeah, the, the constitution was 
borderline a coup. (laughs) Like, let's be clear about this. Like, they got together to uh, reform the Articles of Confederation, and they just locked the doors and wrote a whole new document. Um, So, but they did do that. And they, you know, there's a deal with with nobody keeping any records of what was said in the room so that they could just sort of hash it out and come out with this document as opposed to having full transparency. Now, I don't know of these two. Obviously, probably the answer is you need a balance between these two things. Because you don't want people just disappearing into small smoke-filled rooms and making decisions that nobody knows how or why they were made. And you also don't want people just out there not even considering. I, th- I think right now, like uh, to your point, we definitely have a ba- there's a generation of legislators who are coming into, like say, the House of Representatives who could not care less about actually being representatives serving their constituents. They want to, they want to post memes. They want to be internet trolls. Um, they want, they want to make hay in social media and on the news. They're, they're not actually interested in doing the job of being a legislator. Um, and I do kind of feel like we, we got to like divide up these jobs somehow. Like there, there needs to be in political parties, like, okay, you're just, you're just comms, you know, like you're, you're, you're a face forward person. Then we have these other people who actually like go in and do the job of legislator. And right now, right now people are considering those two jobs to be basically the same. Yeah. I mean, not to drag this into rank punditry on my part, but like, um, uh, this is, this is now documented that congressional offices are closing down and shuttering their legislative shops or scaling them way back while investing heavily in comm shops. And you have some people, you know, like Madison Cawthorn, who's a, I think to borrow a term from social science, a blithering moron, um, you know, he literally, he got an email, you know, he has an email saying, yeah, we're not, we're not focusing on legislation. We're just doing comms. And for him, comms is like own the libs, you know, stupid meme stuff. And I do think AOC is part of all that, but at least she has an eye towards some, I mean, I don't like her legislation, but she has an eye towards actual legislation. Yeah, well, she shows up to, she shows up to meetings and asks pertinent questions, right. for example. Matt, Matt Gates is, you know, I mean, he's trying to stay out of jail at this point, but you get the point. And anyway, but anyway, I, I just thought it was a real, because I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I'm political conservative, though sort of out of step with, with a lot of stuff going on the right these days. And um, one of the bedrock things in, in, in sort of my political philosophy is the difference between the English and the French Enlightenment or the, you know, the, 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 the notions of the role of the state, sort of I'm, a, I'm on Team Burke on a lot of these things. And, um, uh, but that point about the performative nature of the French revolution, which immediately once you hear it, you're like, yeah, I've seen all these movies. There are all these people in the background cheering and stuff. It just makes a lot more sense to me. Um, but all right, so let's get back to, to, to Lafayette for a second. And we have a bunch of questions from, um, from listeners that I wanted to get to as well. Um, um, so first of all, like how, um, what is your explanation other than like mistakes Lafayette made for why Lafayette's reputation in France is so different than Lafayette's? I mean, we know why Lafayette's reputation as an America is good is because we all saw Hamilton, but beyond that, um, <laughs> yeah, yes. Ham- <laughs> Hamilton was the greatest thing to happen to Lafayette's, uh, reputation since basically he died, yeah, right? It's, yeah. it's hard, it's hard to actually think of, you know, maybe world war one, world war one was quite a boon to his, um, historical legacy because we were trying to like remind ourselves that we like the French, um, when we went off to, to fight on their side in world war one. 
But so why is it? Why is he? I mean, is it because the 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 heirs of the sort of second half of the French Revolution or the revolutionary tradition of the French Revolution? The more yeah, left, I mean, it kind of, you know? there, there's there's a there's a bit of a sports metaphor that we can make about this. And like, uh, I don't do you, do you follow sports at all? Should I make a sports metaphor? I, I can handle a sports metaphor. Okay, you can handle a sport. It's basically like you got a guy who's a, a player on some team. And he plays for one team for like five years and he's amazing and he's great. And then he signs a big contract with another team and he goes to that team and he's totally mediocre. And so, the, so some fans are like, no, he's fine. He's good. And then other people are like, God, no, he sucks. We paid all this money for him. Um, so the first team that Lafayette was on was America. And so that team, we continue to love him because if you look at his relationship with the United States, it's it's one of kind of unbroken success. There's There's really nothing to criticize about what he was up to in the United States. In France, his, his record is much more mixed, both in terms of, uh, of what he was trying to accomplish and whether or not he was actually able to accomplish it. And the, the real thing that, that sinks him historically is not just that he was uh, involved in the early days of the French Revolution, tried to create essentially a constitutional monarchy with a Bill of Rights, failed, and was overtaken by more radical Republicans who then chased him out of the French Revolution— who then themselves were overtaken and killed. And you know, this this is a Lafayette story in the French Revolution of being in it and then being out of it is a story of practically everybody who was involved in the French Revolution. So that doesn't actually make him unique. Um, the thing that makes him unique in terms of his memory is that if you are somebody in the French Revolution who is trying to both put a constitution on top of the monarchy, but also resist the pull towards full-blown republicanism, you are now opposed by conservatives who don't want any constitution being put on the monarchy, and you are opposed by republicans who are saying to themselves, why are you trying to save the monarchy? We're trying to overthrow this thing. So Lafayette becomes politically homeless, not just in his own contemporary environment, but also as the French continued to argue with themselves about the French Revolution for the next 200 years. Because, you know, having an opinion about the French Revolution is as important today in French politics as it was back then. The French Revolution still looms incredibly large over French politics and, uh, and the French Academy and French intellectuals. You have to have an opinion. You have to have a side in the French Revolution. And so sort of the left in French politics and French history have a tendency to want to move completely. They, they're all pro-Republic, right? You come out, of, you, especially you come out of the Third Republic and once Republicanism really gets stamped on the French national character, you know, anybody who's sticking up for the monarchy becomes a bad guy, which Lafayette was. You know, Lafayette really, he said, I'm a Republican. I wish France could have a Republic, but he just didn't think it was doable. And at the same time, if you move over into sort of right-wing French culture, you have, you know, they think that the, you know, the revolution root and branch was a bad idea, um, that the monarchy was a good thing, that traditional Catholicism was a good thing, and that everything that's gone wrong in modernity can be traced back to the French Revolution. And who do you find at the epicenter of that? But the Marquis de Lafayette, right? So on both sides, he doesn't really have anybody who's interested in defending him. And the only people really who are uh, remain current who are interested in defending him are Americans like me. And so when I, when I was over in France, I, I lived there for three years researching this book and I would go to like a library, I'd go to an archive and they'd say, oh, what are you, what are you doing? And I would say, I'm, I'm writing a book about, you know, the French revolution and the revolution of 1830. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Who's it about? What's it about? And I'm like, oh, I'm doing a biography of Lafayette. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, you're an American. Of course, you're doing a biography <laughs> about Lafayette. You're the only people who ask for these documents is, is Americans <laughs> who are over here. Um, so I think that's a lot of what it is. Um, 
ultimately what Lafayette was aiming for does mostly become the things that are taken for granted in France to this very day. Declaration of Rights, um, you, uh, you know, a, a constitution where everybody is participating and there are elections um, and it's not just a, a, a tiny little aristocratic elite who are completely uh, uh, removed from what the general population wants to see happen. Um, but at the same time, he did defend the monarchy. And that does put him at odds with French republicanism. It just does. Yeah. I, I, so one of the things I, I learned from you, I mean, um, or I get, I, at the very least, I gained a much better appreciation was that, because, you know, in, in, in my world, French Revolution bad is a very sophisticated and correct opinion. Um, <laughs> sure. And I mean, one of the reasons I've always had a hard time with, with Thomas Jefferson was he liked the French revolution too much. And, um, and I'm, I, I like reflections on the revolution of France by Burke and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things I, that you helped me appreciate is, is that there really at minimum two French revolutions and the second one, you know, where, you know, with the guillotines come out and all the, all that kind of stuff and the ideological officers with the troops going into, you know, the hinterlands bad. I'm still totally down with that being bad. But the first sort of tennis court of, you know, uh, mushy, classical, liberal um, republicanism, I, I became much more sympathetic to than I had been before. And, and it, what's interesting to me is, is that my understanding was always, my view was always that like, once the ball got rolling in France, the, the, I, that, that the terror was inevitable because of, sure. the, of the ideas. Sure, sure, sure. I'm not sure that's true anymore. I'm curious what you think about that, but also more broadly as a philosophical matter, one of the things I've kind of changed my mind about in the last 10, 15 years is I used to think I love intellectual history and I can do intellectual history a lot, but like this battle versus that battle history, I'm, I'm pretty bad at. And I used to think that intellectual history was everything. Ideas drive the world. I was very into all that. I've kind of pulled way back on that in that often ideas are lagging indicators of material or social forces and that people pick up ideas to rationalize and legitimize a position they basically already have. And so I'm kind of curious, first of all, on the, on the narrow point, was the terror inevitable from, you know, early on? And second of all, what is your view about how ideas drive these things? Are they nearest weapon to hand things or do they create a permission structure that, becomes inexorable after a certain point. <laughs> okay, so only like the biggest question in... in, in like, Wait, we've question. got like 15 minutes left, <laughs> no, man. No, Go no, for it. <laughs> um, okay, so gosh, which one of these enormous questions should Let's I Let's do French first? Revolution first. Okay, so yeah. my my belief, you know, and this is just my opinion having read all of this, and I'm, I'm happy to have people disagree with me about this, is I don't think the terror was inevitable. Um, and I've read Burke. I read Burke. Uh, I've, read Burke I've read a lot of Burke. Um, and I think that the notion that reform or doing these things that change the, the long-term deep structures of society inevitably leads to, you know, murder, bloodshed and authoritarian uh, and chaos that requires an authoritarian ruler to come in and start killing everybody, um, is not necessarily the case. And I don't think that it was necessarily true about the French Revolution. I think that Burke, the, the, the incredible thing about reflections on the revolution in France is that he wrote it, I mean, he was writing it in 1789 and 1790. He's, he's talking about things that were 
uh, he he was very prescient about his predictions. And right. So in, in that case, like he gets to say like, oh, I was right about everything. So like, so what do you mean I'm wrong? Because I was right. Which, which I think in terms of the, the actual unfolding of history, it was true. Um, but the counter argument to that is that how do we get anywhere? How do we do anything if you're, if somebody says, Hey, we should change this. We should reform this. We need to, we need to alter this structure in society that is clearly producing unjust results. I don't know. Let's just take something random like slavery, right? How are you going to, how are you going to undo slavery, um, uh, without, having somebody say like, well, if you try to do this, then it's just going to be chaos and bloodshed and revolution. So we can't do it. So it it can often be a recipe and an excuse to not do anything at all to correct any of the injustices or any of the broken parts of society. Um, and it doesn't even have to be something as huge and as moral as, um, as slavery, uh, the, you know, the, the, the aristocrats who were resisting even the slightest amount of reform in the 1780s were protecting what they believed were their God given and contractually signed rights that they had made with the king. Like, you can't tax me. Like we, we signed a deal. You signed a deal with my family 80 years ago, like contracts matter, like that kind of thing. Um, so how do you get out of that? If the pushback is the slightest little reform is going to, uh, you know, blow up in our faces. And this is, this is a very, this is a very, uh, real thing in Lafayette's life. We can bring it back to Lafayette because people like Francois Guizot very late in his life, this is their argument is that little bits of reform actually invite revolution. And Lafayette, I think, stands for the the position that is one step to the left or one step, you know, kind of in the center and to the left, which is that reform is the release valve that that allows us to not go into revolution. If you if you continue this, this really tough, like like change one thing and, and everything's going to explode. Well, no, we need to change things bit by bit. And Lafayette was at heart. He went into revolution multiple times over the course of his life because he had reasons why he thought revolutions could be justified, for example, in 1789 and in 1830. Um, but at heart, he was a reformer. He always wanted to sort of slowly make his way. He's a part of, he, he slowly make his way through whatever is happening in society and correct abuses as he sees them and as, um, as we can, as we can sort of move forward together as a society peacefully, which somebody like Francois Guizot would say, no, 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 no. If you do one bit of reform, then that's it. You know, that next thing we know it's the guillotine. So when you look at the French revolution, my big thing, and I think I get this through in the show is that the real big issue is the war, right? Like when they, when the Girondins come into things in 1791 and 1792, and they decide we are going to take this French revolution and we are going to declare war basically on the rest of Europe in an attempt to spread these ideas everywhere and become sort of uh, messianic proselytizers of what we're trying to do here that created a kind of existential emergency that then leads to the further radicalization of the process. And it just completely gets out of hand. Um, so the, the war for me becomes a huge turning point, which leads to August, 1792. But I think you can even go back before that. And you can say when they're writing the constitution of 1791, I think one of the big mistakes that they made was in doing this division between active citizens and passive citizens that you would had all of these people in Paris and, th and really throughout France, because this is sort of repeated throughout France, where you have people rising up and making the revolution possible for these liberals in their salons and in their legislative chambers who want to reform the system, who want to have a constitutional monarchy and a declaration of rights. The king would have swept them all aside with his armies. 
had not the people of Paris risen up and defended the revolution. The people of Paris understand this about themselves. They think that this is the role that they have just played. And then to have those, um, you know, sort of revolutionary legislators out at Versailles then turn around and say, oh, by the way, if you don't pay a certain amount of taxes, you're not allowed to participate in politics. I think that that's what allows sort of the, the populist movement that radicalizes the entire revolution. And I'm talking about like people like Denton and Desmoulins and Robespierre. That's what gives them sort of the fuel that they need to keep the radical pressure on the revolution and force everything further to the left, which I don't think happens had the National Assembly been less focused on, you know, who has enough money to participate in politics versus like, we're doing a thing about liberty and equality. Let's just let people vote. Let's just let people participate in politics. I think if they had, if they had made that move, that more drastic move, the whole process would have been less radicalized as opposed to um, what people who are more conservative or in the Burkean tradition where it's like, no, if you make if you make a big move like that, that's what radicalizes things. And I think that sometimes bold moves um, can actually uh, reduce temperatures as opposed to bring them uh, as opposed to bring them uh, further up. Well, I just completely yeah. lost my train of thought. No, there no, no, the no, no. I, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's a little unfair to Burke because like Burke. Burke believed in reform. He just believed in prudential reform and all that kind of stuff. I do think that there are some ideas that come out of the French Revolution that almost require bloodshed. Uh, starting over at year zero, always a bad idea. And as a historian, you should have a problem with starting over at year zero because you know it's sort of like, no, no, the past is still with us, even if we change the date on the calendar. And also the idea of creating new men Right, whether it's the Soviets or the French, this idea that you know Irving Kristol has this wonderful essay from fifty years ago called "The American Revolution as a Successful Revolution," and one of his arguments about why the American Revolution, in you know, stuck was that it took into account the mixed nature of human nature. Right, we're neither angels nor demons, and and sure. taking into human nature into a into account, which radicals tend not want to do, gets you into trouble. Yeah, my, my, yeah. And what I would say to that, like, you know, as you say, like, okay, so yes, Burke was in favor of reform. We should, we should get this out there. Um, I think that the British, a lot of the times tend to completely write the 17th century out of their own history books. And they think, oh, we, you know, we did everything just by like coming together and putting our heads together and reasonably. It's like you guys had like nonstop civil wars for like a century. Uh, and that's how you actually got to the glory, like what we call the glorious revolution, which they say was a bloodless revolution, which was like an entire foreign army, like, cro- <laughs> like crossing the English Channel and forcing most the successful king. regime change in yeah, world history. Man, yeah, you know? it wasn't uh, you know like I, I know that not many people died, but if you got whole ass armies in the field, like that's not actually just you guys sitting down and and sipping tea and being like, well, what do you think we should do? Um, so they, I, I do think that that Stuart England plays a much larger role in the history of Britain than the British uh, uh, believe. And they have they have kind of a year zero take in their own minds where everything really gets going in, in 1689. But this is all... Okay, fair enough. This, right. is, all, this is all a completely different topic. My, my listeners are going to be mad at me if I don't ask you some of these questions. No, um, no. We, and we can get to them. We can go along. But I, I do want to make this one point. Okay, I'm sorry. That um, uh, when it comes to the constitutions, we were talking about this, is that I, I do agree that um, with people like Madison and Hamilton writing a constitution that was written to account for the fact that people are not always going to be good actors um, and that people are selfish and that people uh, and that uh, that people are not going to be 
always doing the most virtuous thing. Like it, it's an anti-virtue constitution. It's a, it's a, it's a constitution for people who are not virtuous versus what the French revolutionaries were trying to do in 1792 and 93 and 94, which is, you know, Robespierre's whole conception was first we need to make everybody virtuous and then we can have this great constitution that will work for virtuous people. And I do think that a lot of the failures of that revolution do, as you say, are wrapped up in this notion that they wanted to uh, make people not people and then we could have this wonderful society. And, and making everyone virtuous is just, virtuous is just a heavy lift. Yeah, I just, I don't see it. And, you know, they tried, you know, and we, and we have, we have the French Revolution as sort of, uh, as a great historical marker to look at and say, you know, we have tried this before and it didn't work. They didn't really have it at the time. I think that they, they did get caught up in, in notions that were ultimately proven to be not true, but Robespierre didn't have the French Revolution, the the experience of the French Revolution to look back on and say, okay, well, maybe this isn't going to work because they were the French. They they were the French Revolution. They were doing it at the time. What was Lafayette's vision for a post-revolution France? He covered this a little bit. Um, did, was he afraid of it leading that it would lead to tyranny? I mean, I, I, I maybe you did actually cover this, but at the same time, why don't you give it a try? Oh well, he's he, by the end of his life, he has a very specific formula, which is a uh, uh, a monarchy surrounded by republican institutions that he did believe. Uh, to to his dying day that probably France needed to remain a monarchy at least for the time being, but that there needed to be a constitution in place where everything was clearly laid out, who could do what, um, and it had to have, there had to be a bill of rights, right? There needed to be freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion. He believed in all of those things. If you put that in place, that's what he thinks is the most stable form of government for France in his time, not just generally, because he did think that the U.S. Constitution, he would say this all the time, is I think the U.S. Constitution is the best system of government. We just can't do it over here. He wanted it, but he did think that basically civil liberties in a constitutional monarchy was a, a great society to live under. Um, you said that the, that after studying the Haitian Revolution in particular, you changed some of your beliefs. Um, how exactly? Like what... <laughs> Oh, sure. I mean, that's a, this is a big one. Um, yeah. Studying the Haitian revolution, uh, the first of all really opened my eyes to the fact that I had been experiencing not just American history, but world history in a very parochial way, um, that I had a tendency, you know, whether, whether it's, uh, supporting America or criticizing America, it was always like through the lens of the, of the United States being this, it is so this entity that represents kind of the new world and represents um, uh, just a, a unit that was removed from everything else. And once I started studying Caribbean history and South American history and some African history, I realized that really we've always been living in this giant interconnected world and that the Atlantic world as, an, as a thing is a more accurate representation of uh, the way that people back then experienced their own lives. Uh, Americans did not live in a world where the Caribbean did not come into it, where South America didn't come into it. They were in correspondence with these people. They were trading with these people. It was one giant interconnected trade and political network, right? So that's that that's a part of it. The other part of it is that when you're writing about uh, a society where the slaves are going to go into revolt and overthrow their white masters, like literal slaves overthrowing their literal masters, which it's the only, really the only time that it's happened in human history. There are, a, there are a couple of other like sort of sporadic anecdotes, but the Haitian revolution is slaves overthrowing their white masters to then look 
back on the things that I had said and written and read about the American Revolution or even the French Revolution, where people like Robespierre and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, they were all as equally concerned about being turned into slaves, right? Oh, this, you know, this, this new tax from the king, what are we, slaves? Um, and then to go and really see the world from the perspective of the actual slaves who were rising up in revolt against their plantation owners and big merchants. Um, you know, it puts into perspective a lot of the, what I would say, uh, it would be the hyperbole uh, that was current among rich white men uh, in on both sides of the Atlantic in terms of uh, uh, describing themselves as being possibly the victims of, of slavery. And then also just like the slaves had these, uh, these remarks that they would make about their Overseers, there were the big whites and the little whites, and the little whites were just sort of like, uh, you know, the managers or uh, you know, like porters and stuff, and the big whites were the plantation owners and the major merchants. And when I and they, that's who they're rising up against. These people who had been unjustly, brutally exploiting them and kill, and you know, the life expectancy of a slave in Saint Domingue was um very very short, and the description of the big whites applies to people like George Washington and John Hancock. And when I realized that George Washington and John Hancock were, among other things, big whites at the top of an unjust slave system, uh, this snapped a lot of things into focus for me. And I do have a tendency, it, it did shift how I understand the American Revolution and, and the Atlantic world as a whole. Yeah. I mean, uh, whenever I talk about this stuff, I always want to, I always try to point out that, like, you know, amidst all the 1619 project stuff, which we don't have time to get into, but you have to want to teach the terrible things in American history in part. And it's not a Whiggish point. It's just a factual point because you can't talk about the success of overcoming some of these things, unless you talk about how terrible and evil some of these things were. It doesn't mean we've completely overcome any, you know, all that kind of stuff, but like there's progress and talking about the past as if it never shrinks in the rear view mirror um, is just as bad as talking about the past as if it never happened at all. And the hypocrisy inherent in the American founding about slavery, while I would rather slavery hadn't existed, that hypocrisy was very useful for the unfolding of American history because it allowed people like Lincoln and Martin Luther King to say, hey, look, you're not living up to the principle that we're violating here mm -hmm. right yep but and so you talk about the declaration of independence and the fact that uh you know all men are created equal as being written into the very inner circle beating heart of what the american revolution was about that's going to be true no matter what but you don't it, as you say you don't then not talk about all the other things that jefferson wrote which were you know abominable right 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 and you know I mean, there's a point that uh what's her name uh pauline mayor um yeah yeah you know one of the points she makes is that when you know when the founding when the declaration of independence was written the first paragraph wasn't the interesting part that was kind of like writerly boilerplate it was independence it was the end that was the really big deal and one of the brilliant things that lincoln did is flip that around you know and it becomes the guiding north star really of the american experience i think that we hope is the american experience because it, it, i don't want to get off on too much of a tangent but like sort of lafayette had that opinion Right. He but he he I think Lafayette saw very clearly the things that were wrong with the United States as that were occurring in his lifetime. But he believed that the institutions that had been put in place and the ideas that were guiding the United States would ultimately allow the United States to overcome the things that it, at this moment in time were moral quagmires. I don't we, we've clearly not gotten all the way there. I don't, I don't even know, like, if there's a 
way to gauge like where we are. We're further than we were before, um, but clearly there's a great deal of work to be done. Since we're kind of flirting with talking about current events, uh, someone writes, in the storm before the storm, uh, you explored the fall of the Roman Republic. What are the parallels between that moment in history and America today? Have January 6th and recent historical events caused you to reassess your views in any regard? Well, when it comes to the first question, I would just ask people to read the storm before the storm, the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic, and <laughs> which is a history of a period of Roman history, right? I'm not doing, I'm not sitting there doing like comparing and contrasting American politics and Roman politics, but read that book. And if you walk away being like, oh God, that sounds familiar. And oh God, that sounds familiar. And oh God, that sounds familiar. I'm just taking that out of, you know, uh, Plutarch and Polybius. I'm not, you know, I'm not putting anything on top of that. Um, as to the second question, you know, the January 6th insurrection, yep, this is absolutely what happens. Um, when you start to have a breakdown of political norms, breakdown of comity, um, you start having uh, very aggressive, uh, the acquisition of power is the only thing that matters as opposed to uh, following any kind of institutional rules or guidelines about how you actually go about politics in a society where people disagree with each other, because a lot of what the constitution is about is how do you live in a society where people are going to disagree with each other? Um, if you, if your political culture gets to the point where you just do whatever it takes to get your people and your ideas in power or to stop other people from doing what they want to do simply because they are your political rivals, which is, I think a lot of what's going on right now, uh, in terms of uh, the government's inability to grapple with any of the major problems that are facing us as a society. Um, you know, you get things like January 6th, which is a group of people believe that their guy should have won the election. And they then bought into a giant lie, which is that he actually did win the election. And a mob stormed the Capitol to try to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power from one party to another. Um, this, I, I wrote The Storm Before the Storm back in 2015, 2016, 2017, and January 6th, 2021 was not at all surprising. Uh, it's absolutely the kind of thing that happens. And uh, you know, up to and including the point that they were saying for months, this is what we're going to do. They, they were very, very vocal about this. And I think that there is a great deal of sort of naive myopia out there, both among the political pundit class, the media class, and then just people in general. And I don't want to make it a, I don't want to make it a, a generational thing, but baby boomers lived in a completely different environment than we live in today. And they just sort of assume that the institutions will take care of themselves without anybody really needing to do anything about it. It's just like, oh, the institutions will take care of it. What, what are institutions, man? That's just an abstract concept. People actually need to be doing things. And so when a guy is running around saying like, you know, I, I think this election was stolen from me, even though there's no proof to it. And I'm calling on all my people to like stop this theft from happening, right? When he spends months doing that, you can't then be surprised when they do it. He was very, Trump was very vocal about what he was going to do. They were all very vocal about what they were planning on doing. And then they did it. My, uh, the takeaway from this though, is that I would hate for anybody to think that January 6th was the high watermark of anything, uh, that it was the climax of anything. Uh, we are still whether it's climbing this mountain or uh, or falling into this cliff, like whichever metaphor you want to use, uh, we have neither reached the top nor the bottom, right? We are still in the middle of this. And I think that the next couple of rounds of elections, uh, we will see things like this happen again. I would expect them, in, certainly in 2022, to happen more at the state level 
uh, because you're going to have we're going to have some governors' races uh, where I do think that uh, faith in elections and faith in the institutions of how we select our leaders is rapidly deteriorating to the point where nobody actually believes uh, in the outcome. Yeah, so I I, I, agree, I agree with all of that. Um, I think that people put too much emphasis on January 6th and not enough emphasis on the fact that Trump had said, had telegraphed months prior to the election that if he didn't win, that would be the evidence that it was an illegitimate rigged which election. He did, which he did in 2016, too. Yeah, I mean, no, the last, exactly. the last month of the 2016 election was just him saying, this election is illegitimate, it's fraud, and we need to do something about the fact that they're about to steal this from us. Right. Right. So, I mean, and that and that it goes to his lizard brain approach to to life, which is that anything that is inconvenient to him is therefore must be attacked and delegitimized. I do think like the parallel to ancient Rome and I have not listened to the Rome podcast to say. But I really want to. Uh, well, there's only 189 episodes. No, you, know, should, you, should get, you should get right on. I'm sure you have all the time in the world. It's just like looking knock at a out 72 out. subs and saying, <laughs> yeah, OK, yeah. here we go. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but um you know, uh, Will Herberg wrote this wonderful essay in the 1950s for, uh, I think it was the New Statesman, where he he talked about governing by rabble-rousing. And, you know, he points to sort of uh, Anthony wa- waving the bloody toga to rile the crowd, sort of getting to our French Revolution kind of point. And I think that, so I, I you know, I think the institutions are actually hugely important. It's just that we have, as a matter of culture and of law, gutted a lot of our institutions. And the one I talk about on this podcast a lot is the political parties. We are the only political party in the Western industrialized world. We're the only country in the Western industrialized world whose political parties have given up, voluntarily given up the power to pick their own nominees. And instead, they farm it out to these rabble. I mean, no offense. I mean, there are a lot of perfectly decent, wonderful Americans who vote in primaries. But the dynamics, particularly in the age of social media and cable news, of how primaries work is it's whichever candidate can most rile up the primary voter gets to become the nominee regardless of their qualifications or not. And that was basically Donald Trump's gift in 2016 is he hijacked a party waiting to be hijacked by doing all the rabble-rousing stuff. And and I that trend doesn't seem to be going away. Um and of course, the irony—the irony being that the Republicans uh, set up their primary with the, with the sort of the winner-take-all uh, delegate counts was set up specifically so that somebody who was an institutional entity would be able to capture a majority of you know the of their of their voting delegates to um, uh, to their nomination process, and then Trump's winning these primaries with like 41% of the vote, 42% of the vote. He never, Trump never even commanded a majority of Republicans, uh, all, all through the primaries. Like he never actually did that. He's, he's, you know, he gets called this populist. And as you say, like he was doing it in a sort of, uh, in a public facing way, as opposed to in a, a sort of taking the elite path to getting the nomination, uh, which Hillary Clinton did. It's a wonderful contrast, right? Cause Hillary took this elite uh, you know, the elite path where she rounded up support from every single person inside the democratic establishment. And that's kind of how she did it going up against this guy who's basically appealing to people who had never even voted before, but who are now coming into the Republican party and like, which one of these is the proper way to do things. Um, and those progressive reforms that opened up the nominating process to just regular voters was in opposition to what we talked about earlier, which is these smoke-filled rooms, which is, you know, people who are producing candidates who only serve the interests of the rich and powerful 
unchecked, and, and this is the only option now that you have to vote for. That's what they were trying to undo back during the progressive reforms 100 years ago. And this is just a result of that. Um, so it's like these things, we just have to keep charting a, a course between, but I think between extremes really and how we choose our leaders. Um, but again, like n- we're in the middle of something. We, we are neither at the end of anything nor at the beginning of anything. Um, and we are going to have to keep figuring out how to grapple with this, what I would call is an authoritarian populist movement inside the United States that would very, that really does not, care about the constitution, uh, or about anything resembling sort of liberal democracy. Um, okay. Last question. Um, talking about how we're not at the end of things, you're kind of running out of revolutions. Um, particularly if you do them in chronological order, right? Uh, what are you going to do after you run out of revolutions or what's well, next? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm ending revolutions. It's not that, it's not that, you know, you get to the Russian revolution and suddenly there's no revolutions since everybody's like, well, are you going to do Cuba? Are you going to do Algeria? Are you going to do the Iranian revolution? There's lots of revolutions left. Um, but I am winding down. Oh, I didn't podcast. realize that. I, I did not know you were in fact, yeah, I'm, I'm behind. Like, yeah. So the Russian revolution is the last revolution I'm doing, uh, because I've been doing it since 2013. Um, and there are other things that I have my eye on. And I do think that just in general, when it comes to creativity, um, it's always better to, uh, walk away from something early when it's still doing really well, as opposed to just letting it run indefinitely until like the whole thing is just, you're going through the motions and all this sort of creative enthusiasm has long since left the project. There's a number of TV shows that I could point to that I was not too <laughs> pleased with the fact that they... Oh, fine. It's the Simpsons. All right. So this, (laughs) (laughs) okay, fine. I don't want to become the Simpsons. Um, and so I will, and, but I'll just move on. Uh, there are some other ideas that I have, uh, in my mind. I'm not saying what they are, um, but I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just not going to do revolutions anymore. And I can always come back. You know, I can always do, uh, I can always come back and do a little one-off, um, you know, series about stuff if i want to do the spanish civil war for example or yeah, you got, I mean, again i don't want to give you well i don't mind giving you ideas because you can always reject them but um doing biographies you know you know telling the story of individuals over time yeah know. it's i mean it's, La, lafayette was the first biography i've ever written um but i have always taken sort of like because of the way that the show works um you know it, it's a story i'm doing storytelling and so a lot of how i put these narrative together is reading different biographies of different people and then sort of jamming them into one coherent narrative. Um, so there's definitely going to be more biographical stuff, uh, than I do. I might write my John Dickinson book at some point, <laughs> throw that out there. Did you, didn't you want to do one about Talleyrand? Um, Oh yeah, sure. There's, there's a little, there's a little trilogy of, I, I got these trilogies. I like, that's just the way the human brain works. But like, yeah, like Talleyrand is a very interesting person to me. And also King Charles X, the Comte d'Artois who becomes Charles X. Like those three guys, Lafayette, Talleyrand and uh, Comte d'Artois were all born within about two years of each other, then lived for like 75 years and all died within a couple years of each other. And each of them represents a different major current inside of that period where the Comte d'Artois is the arch reactionary. He's an ultra royalist arch reactionary. Uh, Talleyrand is this very cynical political operator who achieves his greatest uh, feats during the Napoleonic empire. And then Lafayette is this sort of like liberal reformer revolutionary. And if you take the three of those guys and tell each of their three stories, I think you get a really a whole picture of what was going on during this period, at least in French history. All right. So Mike Duncan, 
Thank you so much for, for being on. Uh, the book is Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. Um, there's also The Storm Before the Storm. Cannot recommend highly enough The Revolution's podcast. I hear great things about the Rome one. I just haven't listened to it yet. I'm just trying to be transparent with my listeners. But thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So uh, Mike Duncan has left the studio. Um, I don't know if this was the treat it was for all of you that it was for me, but as someone who's been listening to him for a lot the last couple of years, um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we could have gone, or I could have gone a lot longer because I have, I have more questions. Um, and, um, um, and some disagreements, but like, again, I, I do think the guy is eminently fair and you never get the sense that he's kind of pushing an agenda when I read him or when I listen to him. Um, and I, and, and I hope it was clear. I learned a lot. So I, you know, I feel a little bit like, uh, you know, Macy's Santa and miracle on 34th street, sending people to gimbals saying people should listen to his podcast rather than mine, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. Um, and other than that, uh, got a lot of great feedback on our 400th episode with Kevin Williamson and got a lot of, um, feedback on our drive time episode with, uh, with guy and, and Ryan, um, and, uh, can visit that all another time. Uh, you know, I don't do this a lot, but if you want to give us good reviews at iTunes and those various other places, that would be great. Um, I do masochistically once or twice a month, go and look through the iTunes rankings for news and politics podcasts. And I got to say, without naming any particular podcast, some of the right wing ones in the top 50 are pretty depressing, um, on a regular basis. And, um, uh, I, I should say, and this is not sour grapes. I'm sure they, most of them have more traffic than we do or more downloads than we do. Though I'm not positive about that. Um, the algorithm that runs that thing is just a hot mess. Um, but still it would be better if we were in the top 50 rather than in the second 50 more often. And same thing goes for the Dispatch podcast and our niche um, uh, legal podcasts, um, advisory opinions. And um, I got lots of other things swirling in my head from, you know, uh, that I would love to drag Duncan back in here to talk about, but I can't do that. Um, so uh, we'll just see if we get him back another time. And other than that, I guess I just, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.